Before we begin the last episode of 2018, we are delighted to welcome our new patrons. Stian Barry, Zoe Little, Amy Ray, Ashley Hermes, Jelly Numi, Pierce de Corsi, and Jennifer Landers. Thank you for your support. If you too would like to become a patron of the show, then find us at patreon.com forward slash Nordic True Crime or click on the link in the show notes. An 11-year-old boy goes missing from his home one morning. It doesn't take long for suspicions to take hold. But the boy is nowhere to be seen. Little would it be known that the disappearance of the young boy would be the beginning of one of the most scandalous cases in recent Swedish criminal history. This is Nordic True Crime. Early on the morning of Friday the 7th of November 1980, the inhabitants of the city of Sundsvall in the northern part of Sweden were getting ready for the day ahead. In an apartment complex about 5 kilometers north of the city center in a place called Bosvedjan, lived Anna-Klara Asplund, together with her 11-year-old son, Johan. It was the Friday before Father's Day, and Johan was going to spend the weekend at his dad's place. Björn, the boy's father, lived approximately one and a half hours drive from Johan's mother's apartment. Johan's parents first met in Sweden's capital city, Stockholm, which is about 380 kilometers from Sundsvall. They were young when they got married and divorced after just a few years together. And in 1973, Björn moved back to Norrland, the northern region of the country where Sundsvall is situated and met a new woman, who he would go on to have two daughters with. Anna Clara also met someone new, and she moved to Bosvedjan in Norrland.
At the beginning of the separation, Björn and Johan didn't see each other that often, but eventually, things got better between them when Johan and his mother moved closer to his father. Johan had really been looking forward to this day, because this was the first time that he was going to bring a friend with him to spend the weekend at his dad's. He had even asked his teacher at school if he could finish class a little bit earlier that day so that he could go home and prepare for his trip. Anna Clara had put out some clothes for Johan on his bed. Among them was a newly bought shirt that he wanted to wear so that he looked nice and smart when he met his dad. And like she did every morning, she brought him breakfast in bed, sandwiches and hot chocolate. Johan was reading a comic book when she put the tray down and she kissed him goodbye before leaving for work at about 7.45am. She worked as a nurse at the local hospital. The previous night, one of her colleagues had spent the night at Anna Clara's place, and together they drove to work. At 7.55 a.m., a 13-year-old neighbor who was running late for school was rushing by Yuan's apartment. He noticed that the front door was wide open and Yuan was standing in the doorway with a confused look on his face. He was looking into the apartment almost like he was waiting for someone or as if he had forgot something. The neighbor shouted, Hello, Yuan, as he ran past, to which he was given a somewhat bewildered, Hi, in response. At 8.10am, two sisters who lived next door rang the doorbell to return Yuan's cat, which had been staying at their house. But nobody answered the door, and it seemed like there was no one home, as the apartment was completely silent. At about 12.30pm, Anna Clara returned home from work. She was going to spend the weekend in Stockholm whilst Johan was staying at his dad's. So she started to pack some things and prepared for her weekend away. She noticed a wet towel lying on the floor and the light in Johan's room was still on. When she walked over to turn the light off, she saw that the newly bought shirt, which Johan was supposed to be wearing, was still lying on the bed and on the bedside cabinet lay his watch. Anna Clara thought that it was a bit strange, 
It seemed almost as if he was in a hurry to leave, but she brushed it off and continued with her packing. Johan's father Björn showed up and they chatted away for a bit as they waited for their son to come home from school. At around 3pm, Johan's friend Stefan showed up with his suitcase. He asked if the trip was still going ahead since Johan had been at home sick all day. At least, that was what he assumed since he hadn't been to school. This was in 1980, before mobile phones, and in those days, if someone didn't show up for school, it was assumed that the student in question was home due to an illness of some kind. Anna Clara and Björn now realized that something was really wrong and they started to look for their son. They searched the surrounding areas and contacted the school, but there was no sign of Yuan. At 3.40pm, they reported his disappearance to the police. Both the police and the people in the local area did whatever they could to try and find the missing boy. Hundreds of people gathered to form a search party, and off-duty police officers even helped by organizing searches throughout the night. Yuan's friends and their parents were also out looking for him, and three different orientation clubs divided the area between them in an attempt to find the boy. But he was nowhere to be found. If Yuan had fallen and injured himself or got lost in the woods, he would most likely be suffering from hypothermia in the cold of the night. But where had he gone and why? According to his mother, he wasn't the type who would just wander off. They searched for Yuan everywhere they could and a description of the boy was broadcast on the radio. Anna Clara and Björn were devastated. They both anxiously waited in the apartment for Yuan to hopefully come home at any minute. Friends and family were regularly stopping by to provide moral support. Yuan was Anna Clara's only child, and they had a really tight bond. She had previously said that she couldn't live without him, so she was now being closely watched so that she wouldn't do anything stupid. Her friends and colleagues took turns in keeping her company at all times. After three days, the search party was called off. Privately, the police were losing any hope 
of finding Yuan alive and started to treat his disappearance as an abduction. The National Homicide Commission in Stockholm were called in to help. Björn and Anna Clara were questioned by the police for hours. And so was Anna Clara's colleague who had spent the night at her house. According to him, he and Anna Clara were in a relationship, but she, on the other hand, considered them to be only having a fling. It turns out that he had been admitted to a mental hospital more than once for having some problems with himself, as he put it. He was often broke due to his gambling addiction, and according to his ex-girlfriend, he could sometimes be aggressive. Another ex also told the police that he had once asked her to leave her children with their father permanently because they would have it so much better if they lived by themselves. The police also questioned all Anna Clara's neighbors, but nobody had seen anything out of the ordinary that morning, except for one thing. The same morning that Yuan disappeared, a taxi driver had noticed something. He was an unlisted taxi driver who occasionally worked for cash in hand, obviously unknown to the authorities. He had just dropped off some people in the same area, but as he was about to drive off, he had been blocked in by a double-parked white Volvo Amazon, and the engine was still running. He had then seen a man running back to the car from a payphone. An electrician had also seen the Amazon parked right outside Yuan's window at 7.20 a.m. that morning. More people came forward and claimed to have seen the same car in the neighborhood before and after Yuan's disappearance. And they all recognized the driver as he used to live in the area. In fact, he used to live in the same apartment as Yuan because he used to go out with Anna Clara. After Björn and Anna Clara divorced, she met a man in 1974 in Stockholm, who we have decided to call Mats. He had a son of his own around the same age as Johan, but he was living with his mother. But Mats and Johan got on really well together, and he became a good stepfather to the boy. After going out for a while, they decided to move to Bosvedjan together, where Mats was from. They were both medical nurses, and they both managed to get a job at the local hospital. 
Moving to Bosvedjan also meant that Johan now lived much closer to his biological father. And it was about this time they started to form a better relationship with each other. But after the move, things started to change. And Anna Clara began to see a new side of Mats that she hadn't seen before. He was becoming very controlling, extremely jealous. He forbid Anna Clara to go to the supermarket by herself, or even pick up her son from the youth center because they had male staff working there. He even tried to stop her from working at the ER department because of the male ambulance drivers who were around while dropping off patients. Although they didn't work in the same ward at the hospital, it was on the same floor, so he would often come by to check up on her during work hours. Eventually, people around her started to get really worried. Even Björn tried to talk to his ex-wife, pleading with her to get away from him before things escalated. He had of course noticed the change in Mats when Björn came to pick up Johan. Initially, he had no problems with Björn coming in for a coffee until Johan was ready to go. But as time went on, he had become very snappy with Björn, often coming away with cheeky remarks. So in the end, he just waited in the doorway for his son, rarely entering the apartment. After four years together, Anna Clara had had enough and broke up with Mats. And during the summer of 1979, he moved out of the apartment. The police had already questioned Mats on the evening of the 7th of November, but he had told them that he had absolutely no idea where Yuan was. But then the police were given a tip from one of Mats's friends, who we have decided to call Patrick. He had become very suspicious and thought that Mats had been behaving very oddly. The day Johan disappeared, Patrick was out looking for him, together with several of the other volunteers. He phoned Mats and asked him if he wanted to join him and the search party, but he said that he didn't want to, and said that it was pointless. Besides this, he didn't want to meet Anna Clara. He was very upset and crying a lot, and Patrick felt really sorry for his friend, so he invited him over for dinner the next day. According to Patrick, Mats showed up for dinner, all dressed up in a dark suit. He had never seen his friend so well-dressed before, not even at parties. 
he was also acting very strange. He started to talk about Johan in the past tense and seemed to be very depressed. A few days after the dinner, Patrick called Mats and said that because of the way he was acting, people would start to suspect that he had something to do with the disappearance. And instead of denying having anything to do with it, Mats just said that he understood why people would think that. And that was the moment when Patrick decided to go to the police in regards to his friend's suspicious behavior. The police took Matsin for questioning on several occasions. According to him, on the 7th of November, he had woken up at around 8am in the morning. He then drove up to his cabin to check up on it, since there had been rumors that someone had been stealing fire logs from other cabins in the same area. After that, he had driven to the post office and then back to his house for lunch. After lunch, he had gone for a walk around town for the rest of the afternoon. During the night, he was over at his cousin's house for dinner and he had never set foot in Bosvedjan that day. But this version of events didn't fit with what witnesses had told the police. Except for attending the dinner in the evening, which he had first phoned to cancel, but then for some reason had changed his mind and showed up anyway. Aside from all the people who claimed to have seen his car in the area that morning, one woman who worked with him also saw him in Bosvedjan that day. She remembered it well because she had just recently found out that she was pregnant after years of trying to conceive and she wanted to tell him the happy news. But he didn't see her or pretended not to see her and walked right by her. One of the doctors at the hospital also remembered something strange about that day. The two men were friends and used to spend time together outside of work. He had met Mats at the hospital and asked for a lift home since it was his birthday. But he had refused to drive him home, which he thought was really strange and unusual. Another witness had also seen Mats' car parked just 10 meters away from the hazardous waste building at the hospital. This was situated in a very secluded area of the hospital where nobody had reason to be in except for the janitors. In the 1980s, body parts and similar biological material was disposed of in a big container on the hospital premises. That same container would then get picked up by a truck every 24 hours 
and the contents would then be taken away to be destroyed without anyone ever looking inside it. The door that led into the hazardous waste area was locked at all times and you needed a keycard to electronically unlock it, which in itself was quite rare at the time. That door had on the evening of the 7th of November been forced open with a crowbar and then wedged open whilst Matt's car was parked right by it. Matt's didn't have work that day, but he had signed up for examination on EKGs, which he had failed to show up to. So what was he doing at the hospital, and why was his car parked by the hazardous waste building, where he most definitely shouldn't have been. Mutz denied everything, claiming that the witnesses must have been mistaken. The police searched Mutz's house and of course his white Volvo Amazon. But the warrant for the car wasn't applied for straight away and when the detectives finally had a look at it, it had been meticulously cleaned. And since this was 1980, forensic technology was in its infancy. His cabin was also searched, and it was there that they found tire marks, but they couldn't decide exactly when the marks were made so in turn couldn't prove when the car had been there. They only had Matz's word as to when it was there. However, the police failed to find something which the reporters later found. In the trash can outside the cabin, they found discarded muffin packages and an empty can of cola. But strangely enough, these items were never tested for fingerprints. Three days after Yuan had disappeared, the police had Mats followed, and he took exactly the same walk around town he had said he'd taken on the afternoon of the 7th of November. Was it possible that he had just got the dates mixed up? Or was he lying about his whereabouts that day? Mutz was sticking to his story, but the police were convinced that he was lying. They believed that he had killed Johan to get revenge on Anna Clara and then dumped the body amongst the biological waste at the hospital. And even though they were lacking in physical evidence, they believed that they had a strong enough case, and on the 18th of November, the police carried out one last interview with Mats. 
the whole point of this was to carry a formal arrest and charge him, since they believed that they had all the evidence they needed, but in the end, this would be for the prosecutor to determine. When 12 hours had came and gone, which was the time limit for holding someone before making an arrest, the prosecutor stated that Mats was free to go. The prosecutor did not believe that the circumstantial evidence was strong enough and therefore decided not to charge Mats in connection with the disappearance of Yuan. Time was passing by, and Anna Clara had been off work since the disappearance of her son. But after two months, she just couldn't handle being home all the time and needed something else to occupy her mind. So she decided to come back to the hospital and work part-time at the ER. During this time, Mats had also been off work, but just a week after Anna Clara was back at work, so was he. They didn't work in the same ward, but Anna Clara had been promised by her boss that she would never have to walk to the ward which Mats worked in, so she wouldn't have to meet him. During this time, Anna Clara had started to receive strange phone calls at all times of the day and night. Nobody said anything, but the calls kept on coming. One evening, she came back to her apartment after she had been working the late shift. She watched TV for a bit before going to bed. During the night, when she turned over to turn the bedside lamp on, she suddenly saw that someone had placed all of Yuan's small plastic toy soldiers around the lamp with their guns pointing directly at Anna Clara. She panicked and feared that the same person who did this might still be in the apartment. So she went through every room and looked under and behind everything she could think of. But there was no one there. She phoned the police, but they didn't take her seriously. The next day, she changed all the locks. The investigation into Yuan's disappearance had come to a standstill since the police hadn't managed to find further evidence and had exhausted all their leads. And of course, the prosecutor didn't believe what they had was strong enough to warrant an arrest or make a case. The National Homicide Commission had gone back to Stockholm and had left in their wake 
two broken parents who were desperately missing their son. The case went cold. A few years later, Anna Clara decided to move away from Bosvedjan. She just couldn't live with the memories, and eventually, she met a new man who was a police officer. But one day, Anna Clara's neighbors called her, saying that they had seen Mats standing outside her house, just staring at her. And the strange phone calls kept coming. At this time, it was really hard to track incoming calls, but they managed to trace one of the calls, which originated from the same area where Mats had his cabin. But this was still not enough to tie him to that specific call. However, Mats was convicted for another crime. Stealing a drug called Sobril, which is a tranquilizer used for treating anxiety and insomnia from his work at the hospital, just like the detectives had suspected he had done. But according to Mats, he wasn't feeling well after the split from Anna Clara and started taking the drug for his own personal use and had done so for a year. He is charged in March of 1981 and receives a suspended sentence and a fine. In 1982, the local police in Sundsvall decided to take another look into Johan's disappearance. They were convinced that Mats was the perpetrator and were looking for ways to get him to confess. But he never did. Every Friday, Anna Clara had a progress meeting with the inspector in charge to go through what had happened during that week and how they should move things forward. But weeks passed by and the police were unable to find more evidence to take to the prosecutor. So the only thing left for Yuan's parents to do, if they wanted to take legal actions against Mats, was through a enskilt åtal, which translated means individual prosecution. But this was a very rarely used course of action. In order for this to go ahead, the prosecutor must first have declined to indict the suspect. And this means that it's no longer the responsibility of the prosecutor to indict Mats, but instead Anna Clara and Björn through their lawyer. But this also meant that if they should lose in court, then they would have to pay for all the legal fees. 
it was a big risk. They wanted justice for their son and decided to go for it. They hired an up-and-coming lawyer, Pelle, who was in for her huge challenge. He was a bit unconventional in comparison to other more polished lawyers at the time. But he didn't waste any time in diving headfirst into the original police investigation and forming a strategy. Mats had chosen a public defender, a real top-shot lawyer, who was considered to be one of the best criminal lawyers at that time, Olof Arvidsson. In Sweden, you have the right to choose your public defender, and if no reasonable objections are made against your choice, you will more than often get the one you want. The public defender is then paid according to a set tariff by the government. But again, if you were to lose the case, you will have to reimburse the government's expenses. However, this is all in relation to your economic situation, so it's not unusual that the whole cost lands on the government in the end. Finally, Mats was called to court. Since they didn't have a body, they couldn't go for murder, so instead the charge was for kidnapping, which could result in the same sentence, life in prison. There was no physical evidence tying Mats to the crime, so Pelle presented the witness evidence and built the case solely on circumstantial evidence. Four different people had seen Mats in the area that morning, and Pelle argued that Mats had waited in his car until Anna Clara had left for work that morning, and then called Johan from the payphone and lured him into the car. He had then purposely or accidentally killed Yuan and dumped his body in the hazardous waste container at the hospital. The motive behind the act was both jealousy and revenge for Anna Clara leaving him, and he wanted to make her suffer by robbing her of the most precious thing in her life her son. Mutt's defense lawyer, Olof, answered the allegations by suing Pelle for groundless indictment. Because it was an individual prosecution, the person being prosecuted had the right himself to prosecute as a way to defend himself in the same case. So Pelle, who was in the role of the prosecutor, was he himself being indicted at the same time. The general opinion was that Olaf underestimated Pelle 
and wanted a quick ending to the process. He pointed the finger at Anna Clara's colleague who had spent the night with her before Yuan vanished and who had also suffered from psychological problems in the past. He also fitted the profile as a perpetrator much more than Mats, according to Olaf. But he turned out to have an alibi at the time of the abduction, so he couldn't be the person responsible for the crime. So Olaf changed his tactics and started to try and portray Anna Clara as a bad mother with promiscuous tendencies who was terrible at her job. She was forced to answer questions about her private life which were constructed to show her in a bad light. Somehow making her responsible for her son's disappearance. The trial lasted for three weeks and in the end Mats was finally convicted. But he is only sentenced to two years in prison. Pelle was far from happy with the result and thought that it was an insult. He wanted to appeal and to try and get Mats convicted of murder. Anna Clara was very hesitant to appeal and Björn had so much stress in his life at that time since his wife and mother of his two daughters had, during the trial, died from cancer. So they both were not very keen on continuing the fight. But Pelle managed to convince them to give it a go and they appealed the sentence. And one year later, the case was taken to court once again as an individual prosecution. Pelle had a tough case ahead of him in trying to prove that it was murder because there still wasn't a body and there wasn't any new evidence which could be presented. And this time around, Olaf was much better prepared having learned a lesson during the previous trial and he completely crushed the allegations. He did so by doing what he could to damage the credibility of the witnesses. The inexperience of Pelle started to show in comparison to the seasoned experience of Olaf and the case fell apart piece by piece. In the end, Mats was cleared of all charges and free to go. On top of the fact that their son's apparent murderer now was a free man, Anna Clara and Björn also had to pay for all the legal costs, including damages 
to Mats. Olof even wrote that if they didn't pay the indemnity to his client, then he would take further legal action. They couldn't afford to pay, and it went so far that bailiffs came knocking on their door. Eventually, they pleaded to the government to have the debt written off, which they were eventually granted. The years passed by, and Björn moved to Copenhagen, Denmark, with his two daughters. One evening in 1992, there was a bizarre twist of events. Björn and his new girlfriend were out walking the streets of Copenhagen and decided on a whim to nip into a jazz club for a quick drink. They sat together, enjoying their drink and the music, when suddenly five elderly men entered the club and asked if they could sit at their table, to which the couple said, of course. They started chatting, and it turned out that the men had been attending a get-together for adoptive parents, which they all were, and that's how the men had all met each other. One of the men then started to annoy Björn a bit by constantly asking him to guess their professions. Eventually, Björn gave in and guessed. When he got to the man who had been so keen for him to guess, Björn said, I think that you work as a bus driver. This angered the man and for some reason, he became very upset almost insulted, and said, I will have you know that I'm actually a doctor. Björn found it a bit funny that the man became so upset, so he continued winding him up by saying things like, Yeah, right, and I'm the Holy Spirit. The man then said, Okay, I guess you have been living in Denmark for too long, and are probably unaware of the big case in Sweden regarding the boy who disappeared in 1980. The boy called you one. I happen to work at a mental institution in Sweden where a patient during therapy confessed to having murdered him. Björn was, of course, stunned by this information, but he kept his cool and continued to ask the doctor more questions. And he kept talking and talking about his patient. Eventually, Björn said, Well, then let me introduce myself. I'm Johan's father, and first thing tomorrow, I will be phoning the authorities and reporting you, you fucker. 
Was it true what the doctor had told Björn about his patient? And if so, who was it that had confessed to the murder of Johan? Find out in part two.